Friday morning broadcast, JM in the AM, Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update here on this Friday morning. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's always good to be with you. I appreciate that. I am, I'm having some trouble getting a hold on, uh, on some of these news items, I'll tell you. <laughs> things are getting so complicated out there. Do you think so? It is unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, and 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 what what for me is the most complicated part we'll talk about a little bit later because I cannot even figure out anymore which countries are anxious to eliminate ISIS, which countries are have thrown up their hands in the effort to eliminate ISIS, which ones would like to cooperate with ISIS. It is just unbelievable. It seems like a different story each and every day. Uh, you know, one of the things that came up that we did not—I uh, don't think we discussed last Friday on Shushan Purim. And I don't even know if you, I'm curious if you think it got a lot of attention for the type of news item it was or not. Um, Donald Trump made a, at a press conference, made a statement about the um, expectation that he has that not only will Israel need aid from the United States, but in addition to that, they, that they should seriously consider, and those are my words, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure what tone he used, seriously consider paying back some or all of the money that has been issued to them over the years and join a list of countries where, uh, you know, that he feels need to pay their share back, so to speak. What was, Did it become a big issue or not? Well, because uh, these kind of controversial statements come so rapid fire from the, in this year, uh, nothing has a long shelf life and whatever they say, it, the, the statement itself got uh, coverage about the question of, of paying back for Aiden, but in Israel's case... Uh, the demand is more than than met. First, for one thing, most of the aid is spent here, right. creating tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, it, Israel repays in terms of the technology, the information, the intelligence, other things that it is shared and that it shares with the United States. The improvements on American munitions and American uh, aircraft, other things that uh, are of great benefit to our armed forces. Uh, the um, the uh, reason why you have such a high level of, of cooperation on, on intel and military levels is because it's not a one-way street. It's definitely a two-way street. And as has been said in the past, this is America's aircraft carrier. We have a billion dollars of American equipment prepositioned in Israel, in the, in the Negev. They're available to American troops, and they know it will be reliably there, probably the only place in the Middle East where they can say that. And uh, Israel's role in stabilizing the region, Israel's role in fighting terrorism uh, at the front line of the defense of the United States and, of course, of Israel and and the region. Arab states have come to recognize it. I think the American military has as well. But as a headline, with all of that, as a headline, it doesn't look great. You know what I'm saying? Yes, of course it it doesn't look great. I don't know whether it was a throwaway line. I did not read whether he specifically said Israel. Um, I heard one excerpt, a quote, a broadcast quote, which did not, but he, his major focus was on um, uh, was on Europe and on Japan, or Korea, and I think Japan, where we carry a big part of their defense budget. Right. Not true of Israel. Yeah, Japan, uh, South Korea. percent of its GDP on Israel. His, his response when asked whether he would include Israel on a list of countries such as Japan, South Korea, and Germany that in his view can afford to cover their own defense costs without U.S. subsidies, or at least with far less largest from American taxpayers, he said, 
quote, there are many countries that can pay, and they can pay big league. So that's... He did not say yes. He just said what he said. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to parse words of the candidates this year because I don't know <laughs> any of them. <laughs> you know, you, this could become the whole subject of every show from now until November. Well, not just that, but you could parse them any way you want because you know it's like a thousand explanations to every it, single it, sentence they everything. say. Exactly, it's ridiculous already. Uh, all right, so I apologize for bringing it up, but I thought it'd be a bigger issue. Also, some of the candidates have already, as I'm sure you've noticed. You know, taking the pledge to move the embassy to Jerusalem, which is, I know, you know, a joke at this point. Well, April Fool's, actually. It's a perfect day to discuss it. But um, and nonetheless, you know, the, the fact that it's out there and I assume is going to be an issue in the eventual debates between the two candidates, right? You have to assume it's going to be. Maybe not. Maybe not a debate because they're both going to agree on it, right? <laughs> so. Well, they both might agree, but, you know, if, if this were taken seriously, we would have had 47 embassies already right. in Jerusalem, right. and uh, that would affect the real estate market. So I guess they're, they're worried about uh, forcing the prices up. The, uh, um, but we should not dismiss it. Right. It is important that people make statements recognizing right. that Jerusalem is the capital, that it's still the only place the United States doesn't have its embassy, where other countries don't have the embassy, and the failure to recognize even West Jerusalem is significant. There's no reason why we couldn't put an embassy next to the King David, or yeah. the American ambassador can stay there. They could also put up a temporary residence, as a, as a, even if it's symbolic presence, until a formal embassy is built. All right, this Hebron uh, uh, situation is um, it's just, I mean, the whole thing is awful because it seems to, you know, anything that could, that creates divisiveness, especially in a situation as serious as this, is always such a sensitive issue, and we see what it's doing to the, um, uh, to the public uh, statements. Uh, we see what the public statements on this whole episode are, is doing in Israel and the media, etc., so, I mean, for those who uh, you know are not familiar with the case from a week ago, the, uh, the, the this this terrorist did in fact injure a soldier. Correct? He did in fact injure a soldier. Attack a soldier, yes. And he's lying on the ground, um, and you know, based on the video, it seems that an Israeli soldier went ahead and uh, and made made sure that he would not um, he he would not in any way. Uh, uh, challenge anybody again, and uh, the end result, of course, is that the uh, the terrorist is dead. I, I I know all the sensitivities here, and you know I'm sure everybody is you know has has feelings on both sides. But watching this divide, or at least the way the media here is portraying it, watching it divide, you know, the Israeli people at this point is heartbreaking. Um, is it being mishandled? Should it, should the entire thing be more quiet? Is there anything that can be done to make you know this very sensitive issue you know seem very sensitive? Well, you're raising many different questions, uh, important ones that I think Israel <coughs> has yet to come to terms with. One is when to talk and when not to talk. When to uh, have people, for instance, the the issue of these Jews who came from Yemen. Why hold a press conference, and when you still have Jews there, when you know that this is not going to be well-received by the Yemeni government and could endanger future efforts, um, it's just, it's to me, mind-boggling. And all of those who worked on it and then see, you know, a a rush to to one, two, three press conferences of different people to take credit and to, you know, get their name out there without a contemplation of 
of what the consequences are. Here, you have a, a very serious issue. And coming at a, a time when Senator Leahy, as you know, of Vermont, uh, together with other members of Congress, no other senators joined him but 10 House members, uh, most of them the usual suspects, who demanded that Secretary Kerry investigate in the State Department, investigate Israel for extrajudicial killings, which is a very serious charge. It's a defined charge. Uh, it could be a war crime. It could be other things. Um, and uh, they, of course, cite cases like this and saying that Israel's killing of the uh, terrorists who, I mean, caught in the middle of the act, when they're stabbing somebody, they should stand there and say, excuse me, could you please put your knife down? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so this case has to be seen within the larger context. Second, that Israel holds its soldiers to a, a high standard, and you have strong feelings uh, on both sides, clearly, about the need to, to demonstrate to the world. But on the other hand, uh, to show support for the members of the IDF and when they're in these very difficult circumstances, facing people who have no limitation, who will walk up to somebody and stab them, which is such a brutal uh, act. It's a personal act. You have to have the willingness to, to you know, directly um, kill somebody or, or hurt them badly. Um, you have and to be and the, the Israeli military will address it. They've, they've downgraded the charges to, to manslaughter. They, they, nobody is looking to prosecute a member of the IDF. On the other hand, when something is caught in tape, when you have such a, uh, uh, the, the, all the circumstances that this case entails, the government of Israel is limited in, in what it can do. It has to show that it, it goes through the proper due process. Uh, is it as divisive as the media here is portraying it? I have not heard it. I, I think that uh, the majority of people want to see him uh, exonerated or but given due justice, and you know whatever the outcome it will be. Uh, I, I don't think the government of Israel is interesting and interested in hurting him. But if, in fact, he he made a decision and carried out the you know the a, um, a sentence unilaterally, then that's something that no military. You know, can accept the um, when you when you speak about the uh, outspokenness of you know people in Israel. Um, would it be better <clears throat> if the prime minister, education minister, and others in the administration would simply make no statement about this, or is it legitimate that they come out and express their positions? Well, I think that they have to show the people, you know, that they're concerned and that they're addressing it, and. Um um, perhaps help create a context so that this, because of course the media around the world jumps on a story like this and uh, is fed it, and, and you have a lot of people then who, who use it to exploit uh, these uh, circumstances, no matter how tragic, uh, to the detriment of Israel. So I think that their statements, it, the infighting is not helpful. So I think it sh there should be maybe one statement a prime minister can say something or the defense minister address it talk about the fairness of the process and what, what will happen, and then leave it go. It doesn't benefit anybody to have acrimonious uh, statements being made like that. What is all this going to do to, uh, I don't know, maybe it's such an extreme case that you would think it wouldn't have anything to do with it, but in terms of the the response of uh, you know first responders and security officers and IDF soldiers and police uh, you know officers, I mean, what every time it, I, I would assume every time something like this happens they're going to think you know think another time before jumping to uh, 
to you know assist those who are being stabbed and to you know eliminate those that are causing the problem. Well, it's not. The, I, I, I don't think that they will be reluctant. That they are trained and they are committed to protecting themselves, other citizens, um, Jews and Arabs alike. By the way, who've been protected by uh, soldiers from and, and security forces from the stabbings and civilians sometimes who interceded. So it's it's a spur of the moment decision. Um, but we've known in the past that this does have a chilling effect, and. Um, uh, that's why I hope this can be resolved quickly. And, and uh, Israel certainly holds itself to a higher standard than anyone else. And all of those who, you know, rush to these statements and why what Senator Leahy did has evoked a kind of strong reaction uh, that it has. He doesn't go after the enablers. And, and it comes at a week, and this emphasizes the, uh, the earlier point you made, that the United Nations and the Human Rights Council passed five condemnations of Israel in every area. The Committee on the Status of Women condemned one country, one country, where more women serve in the, in the parliament than in any of the others that they, were, that they passed over who, who have extreme violations, the honor killings, the, which are increasing the denying women the right to, to even drive a car. None of them were subject to it. Only Israel was singled out for, for these things. And now they, they create a blacklist, the United Nations Commission, on human rights creates a blacklist of co- companies that that are either based or business in the in the territories and saying, well, it's not a boycott. All we're doing is informing people that this is the specific list of of companies by name, and the uh, and and the Human Rights Council's uh, consistent uh, pattern of of one sided con- condemnations that Israel is the only one that has a separate item. And the, 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 so when an issue like this comes up during that week of the, the debate and the discussion, when we're very critical uh, of them, they say, well, you see this, this proves uh, the point that we're trying to make. Whereas in every one of their countries, a, a, a soldier who did that would have been lionized. The Palestinians would have built a, a monument to him and a city for him. And uh, the Europeans who are giving money that ends up paying for, for some of these terrorists, as was revealed this week, uh, that you, you, in the U.K. it's become a big issue that, that money that goes to the PA, which they pledged would not go to terrorists, go, they give now to the PLO, and the PLO gives it to them and pays them. You know, the, one of these master bombers got uh, over 100,000, uh, the equivalent of 100,000 British pounds. And... Um, uh, and each family gets an allocation, and even some of the teenage stabbers already are getting uh, uh, paid off as well. In addition to having you know sports tournaments named for them, <laughs> that's right, and and being lionized, and and the incitement just continues unabated. While Abbas says, "Oh, it doesn't exist, and it is not going on," that the the. the um, uh, and, and this has to be seen in the larger context of the effort to, to delegitimize Israel. So when people fall into the the trap and when uh, of of believing a lot of the lies and distortions, and then this kind of story comes, so that becomes a vindication. I must say that we're seeing every week around the country more states adapting, adopting, uh, adopting um, uh, led, uh, measures against BDS. The, the government of the state of Georgia. This week, by a, a, its majority in the Senate, I think forty-one to eight, uh, and the House earlier um, again uh, uh, passed the anti-BDS, uh, saying that you can't buy 
from companies if they don't certify that they don't boycott Israel. Uh, we saw it earlier in a, in a bunch of states that, that the Virginia's General Assembly did it also. I think last week, uh, Governor Hickenlooper signed uh, legislation on this in Colorado. So people see through the, the BDS and, and uh, by and large reject it, I think. But when you raise these kind of statements, and sometimes, as you have now, a former head of Mossad makes a, I think he was doing it because he was trying to be funny or talking to an audience, and he knows that that would get him a laugh to say, well, I'm a, if I had to, to tell you everything I did, they'd put me in jail. <laughs> well, you know what? If that's true, put him in jail. Wow. Uh, I think in the last couple of minutes you've expressed the uh, frustration of the Jewish world <laughs> and represented it very, very well, because especially, uh, well, I'll talk about the U.N. more in a second. By the way, you, you raised the point about state legislatures and the anti-BDS. We know from personal experience that the majority of people who are either in-state legislators, in-state legislatures, or are candidates for state legislature, are likely not even familiar with B- what BDS is. So people around this country really have a unique opportunity to meet up with some of their more local officials, not talking about congressmen and senators. In this case, I'm talking about you know, uh, people in their state legislature. They, you have an opportunity to really have an effect and bring it to their attention, because chances are, if their state hasn't voted on it yet, at some point they will, right? Right. There are seven. There are thirty states, I think, that are considering measures. Um, our Lawfare Project, others uh, organizations, are working on these measures, and they are very important. One, it strengthens the efforts on campuses, uh, and we're seeing more efforts, by the way, on campus. And even the University of California system has taken the steps about defining anti-Semitism, which is very important because it become, this becomes a vehicle, a tool to implement. Uh, under BDS, what is essentially an anti-Semitic and anti-Israel and discriminatory and racist policy. Uh, so, yes, you're absolutely right. This is It's very important that these measures get passed and that those who, who flirt with these uh, kind of campaigns, they're usually just a small minority, but it doesn't take much. All they have to do is, you know, raise with a company, protest at a company, do a die-in at a company. And I've heard it from... CEOs and stuff who said, look, we, we, our business with Israel is the most important business we do. Major corporations in America, because of the R&D, the, the, in, the inventions in Israel, everything else, they, they, lo- they love Israel. They want to stay there. But they said, you know, it's really difficult when employees have to pass by, you know, some of these demonstrations. Thank God they don't succumb to it. I don't think that they will succumb to it. But they have to see the counter voice. And the point, time has come where we just have to say, no more. We're not going to tolerate. Don't wink at it. Don't blink at it. A company that in any way says we're withdrawing from business with Israel and saying, well, it's not because of that, not because of pressure. And I say, you know, it's economics. Let them prove it. But yeah. we got to tell them no more. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Holmline is with us, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Were you uncomfortable when you, <laughs> when you heard the news that it was an Israeli firm that helped unlock that uh, iPhone? Well, it wasn't surprising uh, because <laughs> Israel's technology is, is uh, unique in this regard, especially security-related areas. Um, I, I'm sure others have the capacity to do it as well, maybe not as quickly and not as uh, 
uh, efficiently as they did, but uh, I'm sure that that technology exists in other places. But it reminds us again that, first of all, you remember that so many of the parts of the of the cell phones and the, of the high uh, of the things that we take for granted, including the um, Pentel chip and all these things were developed in Israel. Yeah, well, the, the list is uh, never ending. On the UN thing, uh, you know, I, I know that in you know in the context of it being 2016, and thank God we have a presence in the UN, a voice, and you know, it, m- things are much different for the Jewish people in Israel uh, than it was years ago. And there was a time when there was no Israel, which is important to remind you know <laughs> to the the younger generations about. So I understand all that. The glass is half full in that respect. But it must be very frustrating to you as you make so much progress in the halls of the U.N. uh, on symbolic measures, on practical measures, and you could list many of them for us that you've encountered over the last few years and have been successful at. And then when you get to these five condemnations and you see these lists coming out and, and to such a level of absurdity, it must be extremely frustrating. It's frustrating on uh, several levels. One, because it's all based on lies. Two, how European countries, um, France voted with uh, often with the majority of the U- UK, uh, and I think Germany uh, uh, abstained um, on most of them. There's a very mixed record on their on their part, and yet they can sit by and let the Human Rights Council. Uh, appoint a special rapporteur for the Middle East, whose job is, and not the Middle East, I'm sorry, for the territories, whose job it is to be an objective observer, and they accept uh, a Canadian professor who has made statements against Israel over many years, has a clear record that even the government of Canada came out and said, and this is not the Harper government, this is the Trudeau government, Uh, we did not nominate him. He is not our candidate, and we believe his appointment should be investigated. And 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 yet they picked a guy, and this is in a, a long tradition that the people who held this position. You had Richard Falk, who's you know so outrageous, so anti-Israel, so clearly uh, uh, biased, and yet they're supposed to give objective reports. I mean, it's ridiculous. And he 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 even attacked uh, this uh, uh, professor Link, Michael Link from Canada. Uh, even like in 9-11, uh, talked about global inequities and the Western nations' disregard of law for being responsible for this. So, yes, I mean, the things that we deal with day in, day out, not much of it is never public, and don't, people don't get to to see it. But it's, it's uh, you know, it's it's very upsetting because you're, you're battling against uh, windmills. You have the international agency that's supposed to be dealing with these issues, and yet they're not dealing with the real threats, the the the, the dangers that uh, we see all over. There again, we're seeing the incitement about Al Aqsa. Right. This can inflame the whole region. I, I had a chance to meet this week with uh, Muslim presidents, uh, presidents of Muslim countries, including the president of Turkey, and I mention it because he put out a picture of it, so it's no secret anymore. And the president of of Azerbaijan and others and. There's a huge difference between them. But you hear their frustrations about uh, some of these issues. And yet, in the case of Turkey, how he buys into and raised with me the Hamasharif, the Temple Mount, and how the violations and what's going on there and how it's being... And I said, you know, that this is it's just not true, that it's all based on lies, that you can see now the cameras are going up there. You can look for yourself and see who's who's going up there, who's desecrating, who's responsible. No, he didn't want to hear it. It was a fixed image in his mind that, that, that uh, Al-Aqsa is being uh, desecrated. And then we've seen a campaign this week again 
which is so dangerous when they when the Palestinian Authority and its officials who do it incite people and say Al Aqsa is under siege, Al Aqsa is this, and some of the people, young people who stabbed, gave that as the reason, saying that they were rising up to defend Al Aqsa, and, and so it has real consequences, and then, and yet it doesn't get the attention. So we, those who care. Jews and non-Jews have to stand up and declare and stand up for, for Israel's rights and what Israel has done. And now they're saying, you know, there's a 17-minute film, and it talks about the tunnels that go underneath the Temple Mount. They're, they're trying to disrupt. They're going to, you know, collapse everything. They're talking about Mineral Tokotel. They're talking about the tunnels, which by definition are outside of it. They're built outside. They don't go anywhere under it. And Israel sealed off the area, if you, as you know, near the opposite, the Kachikadashim, the Holies, Holies, any area that would go underneath is sealed off. So, the, but it doesn't inhibit anybody from making a film that the PA and others endorse and support that leads to the kind of reactions that we see. Unbelievable. Um, I'm glad you mentioned, I'm glad, I mean, I, you mentioned the stabbings uh, um, again. And I meant to ask you, as uh, as we spoke about it with the um, the case in Hebron, we know all this started. Uh, that this latest run of stabbing started Sukkot time, um, literally during the holiday. And I'm wondering it, what it has done to the Pesach travel season. Has it has all this news um, had a major effect on on tourism at this time? There's no way to tell at the moment. Well, uh, from the discussions I've had, it has had an impact. Um, but generally the, the region, you know, is impacted. For instance, in Turkey, I think I mentioned that when we were there a month ago, there were 1,300 hotels for sale. I guarantee you the number is higher than that now. Tourism in the whole region is being impacted by the threat. And, in fact, it was a report that the Iranians bought six hotels in Damascus, took over six of the hotels. They're now the property of the Iranian embassy. Obviously, there are no tourists going to, to uh, Syria, except, uh, you know, U.N. inspectors, inspectors or something, <laughs> you know, who stay in those hotels. But the regular tourism is, is of course, decimated. Um, and Israel has been slightly, I would say, impacted by it. Europe is impacted by it. Every, you know, certainly what happened in, in, in Belgium um, is impacting uh, tourism. It's a natural reaction on the part of people because they, they're not sure what's going to happen, and now you have the renewed threats in, in Turkey against specifically Jewish targets, and we have to credit the government of Turkey has really responded, including uh, President Erdogan himself intervening when the Israelis were, were hurt and killed in the uh, terrorist attack, and now in the protection of the school. Um, the European governments have uh, have tried to step up uh, some of their operations, although they're still far behind, and we know that Many of the areas are not patrolled. So in France, they found this huge uh, weapons, uh, ammunition uh, stored in, in private residences, and these were are, are meant for um, uh, and, and including, by the way, small steel balls, which are so devastating when they're used in a suicide belt or in a bomb. And, and really, uh, we used to see it in Israel, and God forbid, we'll see it there again. Um, uh, so that the the uh, it's a universal threat right now, and everybody's becoming uh, subject to it. Now the fact is that in Israel the numbers of stabbings has gone down dramatically, in part because of better training, better intelligence, uh, quicker reaction, uh, and and a sense of frustration amongst the people that you know that stabbings 
after all those who have been killed or hurt uh, uh, on, bo- on the victims as well as many of the perpetrators, that they see that it's not affecting Israel, it's not going to destroy Israel, it's not going to better their lives, so that many of the people uh, are no longer as supportive of it. The, the danger here is that we will see an escalation, that there is increased calls for intifada and return to other ways. But Israel's intelligence has been, uh, I think, stepped up and, and, and very effective, that you have the greater presence of, uh, of police. Um, the monitoring of social media has been very effective in their ability to track and find potential terrorists, uh, especially young people. So the note that the number has gone down dramatically over the last three months. When oh, I was just going to say that that trend started about three months ago, about November, I think. Oh, already back in November. Well, it started, but because you remember there was a time then when, and we even had him in January, February, we had stabbing. Right, but dramatically you stopped. Say. It just, <laughs> just the down, the trend goes down. Yeah. Um, all right. So I alluded earlier about the whole ISIS situation. It seems from the uh, news media here in these parts, so whatever Iraq does in terms of declaring its war on ISIS and whatever movement it makes to try to actually progress in that area uh, comes up empty. That's the way it seems. It is difficult sometimes to keep a scorecard of which co- of which countries are trying to eliminate them physically, which countries are trying to keep them out of their country, <laughs> um, uh, it w- which are trying to um, uh, attack their bases, uh, and which countries, frankly, you know, are cooperating with them. Uh, is, is there any way for you to piece this together for someone like me to try to understand this week uh, which countries have declared war and are having some success on ISIS? Uh, okay, I'll try. I'll talk slowly. So yeah, please. Get it. But um, the you're, you're raising something I think that too many people overlook, and that is that the general audience here and around the world gets tired of an issue. You know, ISIS so much after all this time that the reaction is exactly what you just described. That people get tired of it. They're not looking at the facts. The, 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 and there are many interesting developments in, in terms of uh, what we're facing. It, look, look what Europe is facing, that the ISIS uh, number of attacks is up, and we know that the threats are up uh, in, in France, in Britain, in, in Germany, everywhere. There are, uh, they admit that there are 5,000 Europeans, but the, the threats against Belgium started two years ago. Right. And that the 21 operatives were, were known to have been trained in Syria now hundreds have come. When, when the guy who carried out the attack in, in Belgium said that he was part of a group of 91, but they admit that there are five or 600 who were specifically trained to carry out attacks in Europe, but the number is, in fact, far greater, and they're, they're admitting to 5,000, and the number is more, because you have more than 1,000, 1,500 from France alone. You take all of, of Europe, the number is in the, in the many thousands, and you have similar numbers, by the way, from almost every country. Uh, there are 3,000 Jordanians fighting in Syria who, who will come back, and all of them pose a danger because these guys have been killers. It's not hypothetical. They've done it. So your question is really very relevant about people uh, assessing what, what, what the danger is today. The, uh, Putin and Russia can, can make claims now and are gaining credibility everywhere in the region. Uh, for their role, I mean, their bombings, their things led to the Syrian army being able to take back Palmyra, and now the, they may be marching towards the coast. 
uh, how far they will get, we don't know, but, but the fact is that they have diminished the amount of territory that ISIS has held and its capacity. It is not true that Russia withdrew from the region. In fact, its capacity there grows every day because they're shipping in more and more equipment. Uh, you know, that, that they have gotten contracts from countries like Algeria and Afghanistan and others that's worth 10 times the amount of money they spent in going into Syria. But they bought credibility. They bought the message that Russia stands up for it. And they are still shipping uh, weapons. They have 10, uh, 10 or 12 naval vessels still in the Mediterranean near, including one a warship with cruise missiles, near the coast of, of, of um, Syria and Egypt. Other countries that are, were traditionally buying from, bought weapons from the U.S. are buying from uh, uh, Russia, Vietnam, Pakistan, uh, and others. They keep... The S-400 system, which is the most advanced, you know, defense, uh, air defense system. And, uh, and they, as I said, continuing to ship weapons into, into Syria. ISIS was in there for, for almost a year in Palmyra. Yeah, ISIS was there for a year. They did a lot of destruction, as I, as I once mentioned to you, I think, that you know, the inscriptions on Palmyra, on those famous columns that you see, are in Hebrew, wow. including the Shema. Wow. And that so many of these places that we read about, and people don't know that the long Jewish history, uh, there's places in Iraq, like uh, um, uh, uh, the Pumpadisa that the, the, the missionary refers to, uh, and uh, is, uh, is Kandahar, I think, and the, the, each of these places have long Jewish histories uh, as well. Yeah, my point of it being close to a year they were there is, you know, why didn't Russia go in, I don't know, six months ago or nine months ago? Like, what was the... Uh... Well, they were fighting on other fronts. They were fighting, don't forget, that it's also not such a unified front, and we're seeing more dissension now, and, uh, you know, uh, infighting within some of the groups, uh, between the rebels and the others, and uh, Russia didn't want to put its troops on the ground. It was flying air support. The, the uh, Syrian army was busy trying to defend the Damascus and Aleppo, and now that they've been able to to move further uh, further out to buy uh, additional to 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 be able to attack in a broader front, I don't know how far they will get. I don't think I think that they want to expand the area they're holding before any peace deal, which is supposed to bring an end to fighting, if one is even possible in, in uh, at any time. Any other countries that you would say are making progress on ISIS in terms of their, you know, in terms of the uh, uh, the ground, the area that they control, physical area that they're controlling? So Egypt has been fighting them, uh, but the latest reports are that they that their hold in the Sinai is just as strong. They did get cooperation from Hamas. Hamas is actually backing off of it, and there was a funny story that they they sent six guys through a tunnel into Sinai from Gaza to kidnap one of their own soldiers who, who refused the orders to return to Gaza because when the Hamas met with the Sisi and the Egyptian leadership, they laid down the law and said they're not going to help them, not going to change the relationship as long as they support um, the Muslim Brotherhood. And, the, and there were big pictures of Morsi all over Gaza and Muslim Brotherhood signs and work with ISIS and showed them films of how their guys were helping ISIS in the tanks against Egyptian troops. Well, guess what? I, the, they withdrew their guys, and they've taken down the signs all over Gaza of, uh, of, from the Muslim Brotherhood and of Morsi, the pictures of Morsi. 
that were up there because you know the Egyptians drew the line and and they said you either comply or we're going to continue to to act in the same way that we have with effective policies you know drowning the tunnels and flooding the tunnels and and acting uh, with resolve but overall Egypt still faces a tremendous challenge from uh, from there in Libya you have 5000 ISIS who have established themselves there and are becoming more of a dominant thing al qaeda as well and they're on the coast of the Mediterranean at Sert, which gives them puts them at 300 miles from Crete, which is the beginning of Europe. So I think uh, I, I don't think Europe has successfully um, stopped uh, ISIS. I think the export of of their killers of these people who are the foreign fighters there carrying passports of European, American, other countries from around the world actually um, is going to continue, and these are. As I said before, trained killers coming to to a neighborhood near you. Yeah, so this is. Uh, I would say that ISIS has been diminished. It's not defeated, and they can be very mobile. They did learn that holding territory is critical. It's also critical because they, you know, rob the people and they tax them and they have the energy areas that they that they had captured in Syria and in Iraq, um, which is in part what fuels them, gives them the funding for, for their activities. I don't know if we got to this last week or not. I don't think from this angle if we spoke about Cuba at all, but uh, in light of the president's visit to Cuba and your dis- your discussions with us for years now about uh, the linkage between Middle Eastern terrorism and uh, and rogue regimes in South America in general, uh, does the new relationship between the U.S. and Cuba affect that at all? Does it, have, uh, does it divert any attention? Does it play a role? In uh, in diminishing or increasing, you know what rogue leaders in South America might be doing with terror terror cells from overseas. I don't think it it uh, the Cuban uh, the visit, especially if we look at what Castro uh, Fidel said, it uh, came out and yeah. blasted the United States after the visit. Uh, it, remember that Cuba was key in in uh, working with Chavez and others in in South America. They were entree for some very bad people and cooperated with with Hamas and others for a long time and recognized them and continued to, by the way. Um, so, yes, Cuba plays a role to try to export its revolution and, and radical ideology um, to, to countries in Europe, but I, in, in South America. But I think the more important development, frankly, was the election of the Argentinian president right. in a positive way, right. because he is said all the right things. He spoke against anti-Semitism this past week. He has been uh, outspoken about going after the Iranians or whoever is responsible for the murder of Nisman and for the bombings of the Amiyah, the Jewish Community Center, and the Israeli embassy. So I think that that was uh, a very important development. And I know the president of Paraguay spoke to the World Jewish Congress there and also made strong statements to others. Um, But at the same time, Iran is expanding all the time its uh, presence there. It has tens of thousands of agents in South America. This is by independent research um, from Jewish sources, from South American sources, uh, really very expert people. And, uh, and, and that threat to our border, to America, to the homeland, I believe is very great. Boy, the smaller this world gets, the more complicated it becomes. It's unbelievable. Yes, and and you know we, we don't even get to so many of the uh, of the issues that uh, um, you know come up every single day with uh, uh, and some of the uh, the positive developments. As I said, we met with the president of Azerbaijan. 
and uh, it's very positive. Their feelings towards Israel, the relationships that many of the others we met, the Arab, the Muslim leaders, is is certainly changing. The Mediterranean Initiative is something that everybody seems to want to buy into, um, and and its importance. I think is in, in the long run could be have implications in every area: security, economics, trade, um, but. And more importantly, I think it's a reflection of, of the changes. A lot of frustration about American policy, which uh, they all express. There's a frustration about the West in general, um, and and then when they see that that the, what the United States did this week about um, allowing Iran to have access to what they're calling dollarization, meaning after pledging when the law to JCPOA was being adopted and in them testimony to Congress by Secretary Liu and others, where they assured them that they will never have access to American banks, they will not be able to, to do business through here. Now they're saying, well, we have to help them implement the, the uh, sanctions relief that we promised. They're not worried about implementing. They, they've lived up to perhaps the, the laws, the JCPOA, in terms of uh, inspection, in terms of removing some of the, the, the enriched uranium. Uh, I, I'm, let's say we accept that, but they're not saying that they have to live up to the spirit, and he did. He said we have to live up to the letter and the spirit of law. Well, the le- spirit of the law is not to kidnap American soldiers. It's not to humiliate them. It's not to fire missiles. It's not to do all the things that Iran is doing. And the and the failure to respond to it by the U.N., and, and you know, the, there's condemnations, but they're saying that the sanctions, they can't impose sanctions uh, or for violations of of it because it's only if they violate the nuclear part, right. not the other <laughs> parts, like their support for terrorism, like the the missiles, which is clearly banned under previous UN uh, resolutions, and we and we don't see it. And it's more important. It's how the people in the region see it that they see a failure to stand up to Iran. It, it's to them capitulation. It's to them a message that that you can't rely uh, on the West and the. That, and Khamenei declares this week that missiles are the key to our future. It's not talking. It's the missiles are, are, are important. They continue the anti-American uh, uh, rhetoric, not just anti-Israel, not just, you know, general against the West, but threats against the United States. And if you don't respond to it, if you don't send the message that we will stand up, we will implement to the nth degree all of this and demand of Iran complete compliance. Why should they comply if they can see they get away with it, that yeah. they fired these missiles now four times, and there's nothing more than a mild slap in the wrist and that we're going to get. And, and the language that is being used is changing. The language by American officials is changing, where you know they, they, they won't uh, talk about this as a clear violation. They will talk about it as a deviation and other language. Well, words matter, yeah. and it matters about how our reaction is seen and how the Iranians will read our determination to act in the face of this. Well, they're also concerned about how the White House will react to their statements. I'm talking about the American officials now. They're concerned that uh, that they, if they come out too strongly against Iran, there could be some uh, you know backlash from the White House. I guess we'll have to wait. Well, for these th- are White House officials. This is a a, a, a decision. This is a policy that that is centralized. This is not right. It's defying know. the president. But you do see some uh, military, see others who who have come out with uh, 
uh, statements of concern. They're concerned about how, how Russia is integrating itself into all these areas, which used to be ours, and especially now penetrating the Sunni countries, uh, going to Morocco and saying, you know, that when they see that uh, they're being challenged at the UN, that, that Russia will stand up for them to, to going to Egypt and the other countries I mentioned earlier with the uh, arms sales. So Russia is exploiting it. Others will exploit it. And and it's not that countries don't want to be pro-West. You see how 60 countries are represented at the conference in Washington. Yeah, but when they it, want to have a relationship, but when push, but they, they, if we're not proven to be a reliable ally, correct, then they can't, they won't deal. And it's not just that. There's a there's also a fear. There's a fear of what their neighbors of, might do. Of to course, them. exactly. <laughs> but it's, certainly. It's from inside and from outside. Right, but certainly if the United States acts as if they can't have someone's back, then others are going to really hesitate before they make a commitment to our position. I guess the next president will take care of that, I assume. Let's yeah, but hope. the next president is going to inherit a, a very difficult... I'm not saying these are, any of these are easy situations. It's, the world is very complex now, and there's so many dynamics, there's so much going on, and things happen fast, and there are are so many vehicles like social media where, where you know, traditional responses uh, don't work. But there are cases where a clear message has to be sent, like on the missiles, the right. firing of the missiles. And there we, we have to have some defined response that sends a message that we're not turning our blind eye to it, because now we're appearing to reward them for all the hostility, for all the things, by giving them... Uh, uh, because the Iranians, we believe, threatened to walk away from the deal and saying, well, if we don't, we're, we're right. not seeing enough of the benefit. They got the $100 billion, right. but now the, the trade deals. And the Europeans, who even those who signed deals, were not implementing them because they, they feared that America will put in new sanctions. And America does put sanctions against Hezbollah, against the missiles. But, but if they don't believe, and if they see that they're going to get access to American banks, then the European banks will start in, in making the deals. Yeah. And that is not what, right now, we should be holding Iran's feet to the fire. And with all the violations, with, with what they are doing and supporting terrorism, etc., we can't make this firewall between the nuclear program and all of their other irresponsible, dangerous behavior. Yep. Maybe we'll learn a lesson one day. Uh, way over time. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos, Malcolm. Malcolm, Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.